Hi everyone and welcome to I'll Go First. I'm your host Jessica Minhas. Today's episode is really special. Mercy McKinley joins us and man, she is a treat. She talks about her journey of healing from military sexual assault, how she became a powerful advocate for other survivors, and how we can live our lives forward. Not only is she so inspiring, but she has fought to change laws for the rights of sexual assault survivors, and she has succeeded. Also, please be advised, while we don't go into detail, there is some sensitive content about rape in this episode, so please be considerate for yourself and anyone who might be around you. This episode was amazing to tape, and I'm really excited to hear what you think. Let's get started. doing today it's kind of a strange time to be alive well I'm actually doing well I'm very hopeful in all of the activism that's currently going on in the state of affairs yeah I think it's much needed and I, I believe that at this stage the world is listening and it took a long time to get to this point I'm extremely appreciative and grateful for all of those that are out there protesting now, because I know one of the things that I've learned over time is that we may not see the effects of that activism now, but it will definitely be felt more so in the generations to come. And when I look at my nieces and nephews, I I feel like the world would definitely be a better place for them and those that are of that age, you know, not just specifically for my family, but I do remain hopeful in that area. So I'm doing well, all things considering. (laughs) I mean, you are such an activist now. Do you call yourself an activist or an advocate? I call myself more of an advocate. You know, I think my experiences caused me to not advocate for myself the way that I felt like I could have. And I think I used that experience to really be the voice of others because I know the the importance it is for them to either receive justice or the importance of understanding how to recover from it. So I think more of being the advocate piece is what describes me in a sense, because I have the ability to be there with the person and to hold their hand and walk them through the process. I think it's dual form for me though, because I have been invited to the table of other legislative officials and elected Yeah, officials. you have. I did get to watch your C-SPAN. Oh yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. I went deep on... <laughs> on the mercy trail mercy mckinley trail you really oh yeah i've i watched (laughs) all your interviews i read like excerpts from your book i i mean i i transcribed your c-span interview just to make sure oh wow (laughs) i think you are you are such a star and you are so special we actually got connected through swan which is an organization that advocates for women. You're retired now, but you were part of the U.S. military as a staff sergeant for 13 years, and you were deployed to Iraq four times. Yes, yes, I was. I was. It was definitely a a rewarding experience. You know, there was a time when I didn't think that I had it within me to serve. And let me let me clarify that just a little bit, not have it within me to serve, but to continue to serve long after the experiences that I've endured and to see the transformation over time. That's what makes it a rewarding experience, because there's a lot of people or service members who 
been in my shoes and they either succumbed to the experience or they were not able to carry on. And I think that I left my mark where it counted. And I think I did my best with what I was given. So it took me a long time to appreciate that aspect about my service because I didn't always have that. Yeah, of course. And you've been through so much. And just for listeners, what we're kind of specifically talking about and why I brought Mercy on is really to talk about this idea of being a survivor of sexual assault and what that experience looks like. And I think when I came into the military, it was without hesitation, you know, because I came in, well, I joined the military after September 11th. Wow. Was that what inspired you? Yeah, to, for the most part. And a lot of people don't know that about me. You know, I always used it, the story of how I just wanted to go to college and how I worked my butt off in school, straight A student, but didn't get a scholarship to attend. And I definitely wasn't about the student loans. <laughs> I mean, seriously. Where did you grow up? What was what was Little Mercy like? What was your favorite age? Oh my goodness. I think my favorite age would have to have been 15. I grew up in Prince George's County, Maryland. I'm from Oxon Hill, Maryland, but I was born in New Orleans. You know, I still have my, my deep South roots within me. But I think being the age of 15, that was the the standout age for me, because that's when I became more active in high school. You know, I used to be a member of the Academy of Law and Public Policy and little old short me, I'm not even five feet tall, but I used to play tennis and volleyball in high school. And just that time to go from, to start growing into who Mercy ultimately is. Talk to me about what happened with college. Well, I got accepted into Duke University and majority of the universities that I did apply to, but the scholarships didn't come in the manner in which everybody assumed that it would. I graduated as valedictorian of my high school class uh, with a 4.29 GPA. Um, I'd done as much activities as I possibly could to build a solid, well-rounded resume because I always wanted to go into political science, but the scholarships didn't come. The reasons that was provided to me was my family made too much money. Wow. So, yeah. And it, it so totally surprised me. But at that time, I started working three jobs. I was attending community college in order to go to college. And then that's how I met my recruiter. <laughs> Did you feel disappointed that you had to go to the community college? What was that like? Initially, it was difficult to accept. And I had to learn over time that there's more than one path to your goal. You know, and I think at that moment, that's when I learned that for myself. But originally, initially, yes, I was very disappointed because I've always been taught and it's always been uh, ingrained within me that if you work hard, there's greater rewards at the end of, of the amount of effort and amount of work you put in. So when it didn't manifest itself into scholarships, that was very disappointing for myself. And to go to community college was, I initially, I looked at it as a setback, but over time it didn't, it wasn't a setback. I would have preferred to have went to Duke University and enjoyed the overall college experience on that level. But 
I do see that sometimes it's not where you start, it's where you end up. So over time, I accept that for what it was. That's so good. That's so, (laughs) so good. (laughs) So you were in university, really come to a place accepting it, sounds like, and you had just mentioned that is where everything that that was the moment that things kind of changed you met the recruiter tell me about that this recruiter was very relentless you know obviously given September 11th they had to be very proactive in how they recruited but it it took me by surprise how consistent he was because for just about 30 days straight he knew my schedule. So he knew what That's time. Creepy. I gotta be honest. Yeah, to a certain extent it is. <laughs> to a certain extent, it definitely is. But I don't know. It was just a feeling within me that on the 31st day, I turned around and I said, shoot, you got X amount of time, you know, give it your best shot. And immediately once he said, oh, $90,000 for school, I was sold right there. I was just ready to go. <laughs> But initially, that was only half of my willingness to want to serve. I think by me being in a national capital region and when September 11th occurred, yeah, and just the, the amount of fear, because I was working at Kmart at the time, and I remember the fear that came over me of not being able to get in touch with my dad when that occurred. All of the cell phones, the communication was, was shut off, and I wasn't able to get a hold of him. And simultaneously, the protector that lurked within me that I didn't know existed surfaced. So that kind of like led my decision even more to enlist in the military. I didn't know what I would be able to do because generally when someone look at me and I'm not even five feet tall, they don't... They don't generally think of me as a protector, but that was part of my reasons for wanting to join. And I off to basic training and I went. And <laughs> how was basic training? Oh, wow. Basic for training. For someone that's was... under five foot, but hella driven. I mean, you are. <laughs> if yeah. I have ever met a woman that will get the job done, it is Mercy McKinley. Initially, it was very taxing. It was grueling. Physically, I don't think I was prepared, but I think mentally I was prepared. I think how I was raised provided me the opportunity to be mentally tough, but physically I was not measuring up. I just didn't cut the mustard, man. (laughs) I'm just going to be quite honest with you there. But I think over time, the, my refusal to accept failure is what got me over the hurdle and actually able to complete basic training, even though it was not according to schedule. There was a special sergeant, (laughs) a special drill sergeant. (laughs) Yes, drills. I couldn't do anything right by him. It was so funny because I wear glasses and in basic training, they issue you birth control glasses. So that's kind of like BCGs where no one would want you because it's so ugly. But then again, they issued me tinted BCGs. So drill sergeant would call me private Rachel's sister. <laughs> you know, it just, it was really he white? Just had, was yes, he was. Yes, he was. Do you feel you know? like that played into it? No, I don't think that played into it. I think maybe for him being short stature. I think maybe he had difficulties along the way 
And I think he wanted me to know that just because you have a short stature doesn't mean that you can't be just as good as the rest. And I think he zeroed in on the fact that I felt that I was not because I mean, walking in formations with people that are six feet tall, and then you have to try to stay in sync and stay in step with them. And I think maybe four of my strides equal one of theirs. So naturally I was more tired faster than they were, but he was just right there to ride me every step of the way. (laughs) Yes, he definitely did do that. There is a moment that I'm getting at. Oh, yes. Oh my goodness. You know, I had a hard time passing the two mile run that was required. I would always What's miss the time. time. Well, the time was nine minutes and 54 seconds to be able to run the one mile. Pardon me. I mean, that's fast. And yeah, that, that is pretty fast. Sure. <laughs> yeah, that was the time for females. And I what was think, the time for guys. I'm not exactly sure because I know it changed over time, but I don't recall at this moment. Could you do push ups? I still oh, I can. Oh, yes. Girl, yes, 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 I cannot. yes. You know, the way my the way that the drill sergeants trained us was, and we were so naive to the fact, they had us thinking that our max was our minimum. So they had us thinking that our max of push-ups that we were allowed to do, which the minimum over time I've learned was like 19 push-ups for females, but he had us thinking that 42 was the minimum required for us, but that's the max for females. So over time, I would just do 42 push-ups and 92 sit-ups in two minutes, you know, like he trained me, like he zeroed in on me to be able to do that. But when it came to that run, honey, (laughs) I was dying. And I would always miss it by maybe like a minute or a minute and a half or up to two minutes over. And literally, I had my final shot. Otherwise, I would go home a failure or be recycled. The night before, I pulled out my Bible that my mom gave me in fourth grade for the first time making straight A's. And I just automatically went to the specific scripture, you know, with no intention of turning to that scripture. But the scripture said he brought me up out of a murray clay, set my feet upon a rock and established my goings. And immediately it occurred to me to write that scripture on my my tennis shoes. So the next morning when it was time for me to take my PT test, I just get to the formation and, you know, everybody's like, what's that on your shoes, private? Who told you to write this on your shoes, you know? But I was just more so focused and more so determined to pass that PT test. And when I finally came around the bend to complete the last leg, it shocked everybody, you know, because previously I would have not made it to that mark at that time. But something within me, I just started opening up my stride, start pumping a little bit harder. And next thing you know, I passed and it shocked him. It shocked him. And I had missed the opportunity to get my, it's equivalent of a high school yearbook but it's a book that we do to commemorate basic training, but they didn't think that I was gonna pass. I wasn't able to partake in the activities of it, but Drill Sergeant Alimo had got me a book and he went around and had everybody in my platoon sign the book and put messages, what they thought about me in it. And after I returned from completing my uh, PT test, that took me a long time to finally pass. The book was sitting on my bunk and in the book, he said, welcome to the army. I knew you could do it all along. (laughs) Wow. Well, that's, 
I mean, gosh, that really speaks to your tenacity. I'd love to hear a little bit about what happened in your experience that in the military that led you to where you are now. Well, early on in my military career, when I PCS to Germany, almost within the first month of me PCSing to Germany, that was when I was sexually assaulted. I was sexually assaulted by a group of male service members. And the lasting effect that it had on me was more so not just the act itself, but the response of my unit in the military, you know, because it involved multiple members. I was sodomized during that time. There was someone that was specifically given the role of being the watch out person. So his job was to turn up the music to drown out any sounds that I made. But these soldiers were lined up. (laughs) How many were there? Well, initially there were two. And then there was a knock on the barracks door for more soldiers to come in. And I was going in and out of consciousness. So, and I also suffered a traumatic brain injury behind it. Like I had a concussion in the process of being sexually assaulted. And I was able to go and complete a SANE exam at Longstool, which was like maybe 45 minutes to an hour away from where I was stationed. And I think the experience for me was when I was returned back to my military unit after having completed the same exam, I was returned in hospital scrubs. So the protocol was not to leave a survivor of sexual assault alone. So they knew the the military at this point, you had told what happened. It was my roommate at the time, because by the time I was able to get out of the barracks room, I had ran to my room and my immediate response was to turn on a shower. And I kept repeating over and over that I feel dirty. My roommate was home at the time, but she was trying to ask me what was wrong and I was not responsive to her. My main goal was to wash them off of me. Yeah. But she put two and two together. And she was able to go downstairs to get help from a senior leader that was on duty at the time. And in return, they called the military police and I was escorted to the hospital to receive a SANE exam. Talk to me about what that means, a SANE exam after sexual assault. Well, a SANE exam is an exam that's completed by a qualified and licensed sexual assault nurse examiner. Their responsibility is to collect the evidence required and to conduct a physical exam. I mean, it's terrible that it's named a SANE exam. Yeah, you're exactly right about that. And I never put two and two together until now, but you make a valid point. (laughs) You definitely do. And it it was a difficult moment to get through that because I didn't want to be touched. I just was screaming every time someone yeah. would to come near me to want to do the exam. So it took longer to get the exam done than what they wanted. But ultimately I was provided hospital scrubs. So when I finished completing the forensic exam for them to collect evidence, they in return drove me back from the hospital to where I was stationed, to my unit. And I was dropped off at my unit in hospital scrubs in the early hours of the morning. And part of the process is not to leave a survivor alone. So 
they assigned me to this one particular female non-commissioned officer, which I'm not going to disclose her name. But at the time, she was supposed to be my platoon sergeant. And they were getting ready to conduct physical training because we would conduct physical training like early out, early morning exercises. So instead of her or the unit allowing me to eat, bathe, and rest, they instead they chose for me to follow them around the entire unit throughout the day in those same hospital scrubs. Why do you think that is? I think they wanted to make an example out of me. I think they were not equipped to handle that particular experience. They were not adequately trained. I think that they didn't have any form of empathy that's often required in this process. What does that mean, make an example of you? Because I'm just setting the scene. You you have been gang raped by multiple people and going to the hospital fucking exhausted excuse my french no no that's okay okay. this makes me so furious you know and now you're being forced to walk around i mean i that doesn't even make logical sense to me i think there's a there's some type of how can i put it i think some people tend to think that certain survivors places themselves in situations to be sexually assaulted so this was really made an example of you and your complicity and your mistakes, hypothetical mistakes in the situation. Is that? I believe so. I believe so. And, and I wouldn't doubt it. I mean, I can't. I want to find these people. Believe me, Jessica. It took Just me a- give me the last name and I can find them. <laughs> it took I mean, me a long time wow. to be able to talk about it in this manner, but I definitely understand where you're coming from. And I held a lot of anger behind that, a lot of anger. And when I was finally able to really shower, because I had semen, you know, I had them on me. It was well late into the afternoon hours. And needless to say, I went through my moments of depression behind that. Their processes at the time was to rapidly separate you from service without so much as a so much of a thought about your care, your overall well-being, or what would happen to you. They they saw you as a problem. They saw you as more of a liability at that moment. So it was easier wow. for them to think of ways to get rid of the liability. So I, I had a difficult moment. No one would talk to me. No, none of your service, even the females? No, not, no, no one would really talk to me. They wouldn't acknowledge my presence. I don't even know how you're still standing, Mercy. (laughs) It was definitely a difficult moment and it was not a pretty sight. How how long did this go on that they kind of ostracized you? Well, I was initially, it occurred in January of that year. So I was ostracized for about a good six months. Wow. I think they started getting to know me or stop ignoring my presence was because we had to prepare for a deployment. And one of the things that I was, or probably still am to this day, is very proficient in my job. My job was to logistically sustain all type of operations and all type of environments, no matter what the conditions were. And I think that they knew that because I had a previous deployment before 
where my job was to coordinate battle damage assessment repairs. So when the vehicles would get blown up by improvised explosive devices and service members would perish in those vehicles, my job was to sanitize those vehicles. Mercy, no. Yeah, yeah, it really was. And wow. to make sure that they had another vehicle and the equipment that was required within 48 to 72 hours. So I was the type of person that can coordinate the supplies that's needed for air life support systems in Afghanistan to sustain a unit in Iraq. So I think at that moment, it was more so about them realizing my value in that ability to serve. So it was kind of like they gave me a choice to be separated from service. And at that time, service members were separated from services with personality disorders and negative impact on their DD-214s. So they wouldn't have an opportunity to have a job or be able to apply for their benefits from the Department of Veteran Affairs. Where are these guys at this point and what's happened with the police? Are they engaging in prosecution? Well, I think for me at that moment, I got on a stand and I froze. And that was one of my biggest regrets. And that's what fueled me into my advocacy because I knew that many people that experienced what I experienced would not have their day in court. But at that time, they didn't have, they didn't adequately prepare me to take the stand. It was like one day I'm being told to get in my dress uniform with all of my awards, all of my ribbons be at a particular location at a certain time and just be prepared to take the stand. No one prepared me of how to respond in sitting directly in front of the alleged perpetrators, you know, if you want to be politically correct. And I couldn't, I couldn't speak. I lost my voice at that time. And the only thing that I remember was the judge asking me, if you can't speak, nod your head north and south so I can be dismissed from the stand. And I nodded my head north and south to be dismissed from the stand. But the CID agent, and I wish I had the opportunity to thank him because he was the only one that really treated me with the empathy or the respect that I felt that I deserved. And when I was passing him to a room that I was told to go to when I was dismissed from the stand, he gave me the look like, I'm going to fight for you. Like, because he got the perpetrators, the alleged perpetrators to admit to what they did. It was all laid out in the evidence. So the ringleader was discharged from the military, but part of that was he was required to register as a sex offender, but he didn't do that. It wasn't until years later when I became a victim advocate in the military to assist survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault did I realize that they didn't do what they was required to do for that particular person because I tried to contact Germany to get a copy of my records and the special victim council that was over that particular jurisdiction tried to get a hold of me and asked me and left a message on my voicemail that said, I heard that you're trying to get a hold of your records that involve such and such as the alleged perpetrator. We're trying a case now with this particular suspect. 
which was the same name of the person that was the ringleader in my assault. And they wanted to know if I wanted to contact their office. So there was a lot of mishandling that went inside my case. A lot, a lot, a lot. I would be wrong if I didn't tell you that I still harbor a sense of anger behind that. I'm angry. Yeah. <laughs> what happened to the other perpetrators? They received Article 15s and they were allowed. To... Which, what's that? Well, Article 15s is non-judicial punishment where it can involve reduction in rank. It can re involve loss in pay. It can involve extra duty. But they were allowed to stay in the military and transfer units. That is nauseating. How do you deal with the anger? Well, I think for me, I channel it in other ways. I know what it's like to be on that side. So when my first sergeant came at the time and asked me to be a victim advocate, it was like I was able to immediately flip a switch to become passionate about providing them with opportunities that I didn't receive. And my way of dealing with it was to channel it in towards advocacy, was to channel it into aligning myself with members of Congress to make change. So no one would have to walk around in hospital scrubs for an entire day of their unit after having been sexually assaulted because they didn't know how to handle it or they were not properly prepared. So I just threw it more so into the advocacy piece. But six months after that, I did deploy to Iraq and I still did my mission. I still did what was required of me, what I've been known to do, which is to give them the ability to shoot, move and communicate at a moment's notice. And over time, I just went through the process of attempting to heal myself. But I think the ability to become an advocate and to see some of the actions that I suggested be put into legislation and be put into process to make it better for survivors, I think that helped to heal me in a sense. Wow. I don't know how the anger part I mean, they're so inconsequential at this point hearing your story, but I, I harbor a lot of anger towards the perpetrator. I don't harbor the anger towards the system because I, I understand the way that victims were treated. In my case, in the two cases that I went to the police over, mm -hmm. in both of those cases, the victim advocate encouraged me not to go to trial. It was because I was at the time 19 and then 20, 20 years old and it was right after my grandfather passed and I didn't have any other family. So mm -hmm. what I was told was that you're not going to have any backup if you go to trial. So we would just encourage you to not report the perpetrator. And at the time it made me really angry. Now I can see that victims who don't have the social support to back up um, that process, that criminal and judicial process, I can understand why they recommended that. But the perpetrator being able to live his life and even the community around kind of their distancing was really hard and even is hard now and some of the victim blaming how did you get yourself in that situation oh i knew those guys were bad news why did you associate yourself with them that has really left a a taste in my mouth that's quite nauseating and I mean, there are so many elements of your story that as a hearer and observer make me furious. 
it's a weird thing to be able to observe someone else's story and just be like, where are they? I'm going to find them and ruin their lives. I can, yes, I can. To the best of my ability. (laughs) But it's hard to (laughs) feel like I can do that for my own story. I am just amazed that you are the woman that you are today. There are so many components of your story that are so hard. What do you think was the hardest part about this process? I think the hardest part for me about the process was, you know, the internal damage um, and the act itself or the physical elements that occurred behind it had the ability to heal itself. I think for me, it was the response of my unit and the image of standing in a battalion size formation with a bunch of soldiers that I have yet to get to know in hospital scrubs. It's just disgusting. Yeah, I think that's the one that stands out the most for me. And when I go to counseling, which for me, I know would be a lifelong process. That's the one thing that I always discuss. So they know that that particular process at that moment was the most traumatic for me. Because at that time, I felt like I had sacrificed so much because it's not easy to deploy. You know, it's not easy to, and I knew that that's what I was getting into when I enlisted after September 11th. Like I had no qualms or no hesitations about deployment. I just was naive in a fact because I didn't know that that existed in the military. So I sexual assault. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I did not know. And for me, being in hospital scrubs and no one talking to me and avoiding me like I was the plague, I think that had the lasting impression upon me. But at the minute when they knew that they had to deploy and because I was, you know, proficient in what I needed to do, then that's when you acknowledge my presence, you know, so I had a hard time with that. If I remember correctly, that part of your story is also a domestic violence situation? Yes, yes, I did. I was involved in a domestic violence situation. And my abuser, I had met him during my first deployment, which was 2004, 2005 time. So this is kind of right after the incident. Oh, it's like years after that. It doesn't feel like years after listening to your story. <laughs> it feels no, like it's, right no, away. Just... You know what? Surprisingly enough, when when the trials came, they came right after one after the other. You know, it was like a one-two punch. But by that time, I had definitely found my voice. You know, I just knew that the person that froze on a stand, the person that didn't have the ability to speak that couldn't lift her eyes or her head up beyond looking at the floor did not exist any longer. And I was going to fight tooth and nail for the justice that I felt like I deserved. Yes, the domestic violence did involve being strangled, did involve being beaten. It did involve having additional surgeries. I think I was strangled in such a manner to where I couldn't even talk. I had a hard time breathing. I had a hard time swallowing. I had a hard time eating. And for me, it was such a cumbersome process 
because I had to fight for my own protective order. I had to prepare my own documentation for the protective order. I had to go to the courthouse and deliver, you know, deliver the documents. I had to take that from one part of the courthouse to the other part of the jurisdiction clear across town so it can be properly served. I had to go and try to get my own legal representation and just a lot of processes that I had to do on my own. So you're having to deal with the civilian judicial system. Yes, versus... initially, yes. And and was your perpetrator a military? Yes, he was. Yes, he was. Why not military? Walk me through how that, how this, I mean, I'm so yes, disgusted with military yes. police at this yes. point and hearing your stories. You know, because the assault occurred off the off the military installations, so it's two different things. When I was, um, I have a hard time saying thing, right? Because it's much easier for me to talk to other people and just say I was sexually assaulted. That's how I rationalize it to be able to talk. Because it occurred on a military installation, the first responders were military police, CID agents, and things of that nature. But because the domestic violence occurred off the military installation, the first response is the community is the civilian police department. And it was odd. And you want to know why it was so odd is because when I went to the police station to press charges, it was the male officer that told me that you need to do X, Y, and Z. Whereas the female officer tried to tell me that my injuries were not as bad as they were, as bad as I made them seem. Why do you think that is? Let me tell you in all honesty, I think she herself probably experienced not that, but experienced the same things that I think we as female veterans experience in the military, which is to be a part of the the big boys club. So I think at that moment, that was her being a part of the big boys club, if that makes sense. Because when I interacted with her, it was totally separate and totally away from the male officer. So I think that that played a factor in her response towards me. And plus, I don't think the civilian police force is properly trained to adequately assist survivors in that, in that situation. And I don't make excuses for any, for, for the military or the civilian. I just personally know that from having been a, a victim advocate across all facets. But the male officer was the one that told me, hey, in the morning, I know that you're going to experience X, Y, and Z. And he was definitely right. Because by that time, the bruising, I had bruising on my ribs. I had bruising on my back. I had bruising on my neck. I had more bruising on my forearms. I had bruising for where he kicked my left leg. So the bruising had definitely set in by that time. And I had to be seen in the emergency room and receive all kinds of tests to determine if I had any rib fractures and things of that nature. So I think what stands out from that experience is the cumbersome process that I had to follow to even get a protective order. What made you keep going? Because for me, I wanted accountability. You know, I felt like I was deserving of it. I knew that I was deserving of it. And I knew that given how I was on the, on the other side of the justice system before, I knew that I had to push for my own form of justice. I had to stay on them because 
even the detective that was assigned to my case, it was hard for me to get a hold of him. Some might say that at this point, why bother? Because, you know, we know the statistics. So few survivors of sexual assault are able to make it through the terrible process and horrible, frustrating process of the criminal justice system to get their perpetrator tried. And so for you, what was important about pushing forward with it? And where did that strength come from? Where do you think that strength came from? I think the importance for me was to recognize that, A, I may not be the first victim of this perpetrator, and that B, if this person is not held accountable, surely they're going to think that they can get away with it and someone else is going to experience it after me and experience it much worse than I had. If my ability to fight tooth and nail to hold you accountable is going to prevent you from doing this, if not even worse, to someone else, then I'm going to stand toe-to-toe with you and give it my best shot to prevent that from occurring. I have heard this saying and it frustrates the hell out of me. I find it so insulting to survivors, and maybe I just don't understand it well, but when people will say, oh, they've been re-victimized, this is something that happened again to them, they're repeating this trauma cycle. I definitely have had that said to me. For you and your experience, how do you unpack that? I had to say to myself, I had to sit down and consciously say to myself, They have done a disservice to me, but I'm not going to do a disservice to myself any longer. So I say to myself, I'm going to give my own self the gift of validation. I'm going to give myself the own gift of acceptance. I'm not going to look for no one externally or any external factors to give that to myself. I'm going to make a conscious effort to give myself that gift. And once I started doing that and changing my patterns and my way of thinking, but more so channeling in a, in a way to make it better for others, I was able to not internalize the re-victimization that they wanted to impose upon me. I love that. I think there's something really beautiful that speaks to your tenacity and You have said in the past that we do ourselves a great disservice when we are not vocal in order to have a shot at resilience. And I'm just wondering, how did you articulate your experience? What was that process like? That process for me was understanding that no one is going to properly understand my experience unless I have the ability to properly articulate it. No one is going to have the opportunity to fully understand what I experienced in an effort to bring about change unless I try to articulate it the best way that I know how. How did you sit down and do that? Because I'm I'm just thinking it's so hard to find the words sometimes. Well, it definitely is. But for me, I'm a writer. And I think it was easier for me to write it down, write it down in in a manner as though the person that I am expressing these thoughts to are physically present before me. Because there are some people in some agencies and some organizations out there that assist with the recovery process and the healing process that do accept written correspondence as a means to fully understand what you've experienced. So for me, it was just writing it down because I think there's a block there when we try to communicate that to someone physically in the flesh because we think that they're passing judgment. 
So we try to internalize that judgment. But when we take that factor away and it's just us and we write that down, the judgment that often comes with the person physically in flesh does not exist in, on the paper unless you put it there. And that's what I encourage survivors to do. So really finding that for yourself. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. You have also said that how we survive is unique to each person, that we should never compare our experiences with someone else. And when you try to compare, you're experiencing, you're lessening your experiences as bad as the next person. And wondering, because I literally in our earlier conversation, I did exactly this. And it's, I find it hard not to. It's ironic because when I talk to other survivors, I say that you should never compare your experience because it's all relative. But I just did it as well. So, <laughs> uh, I how do you not do that, or how do you? you no, know, I think over time I became committed to wanting to heal, and I knew that why I, why not just bury it? No, no, because I have to live, baby. I have to live, Jessica. I know what it's like to sit down and be mentally enslaved. I know what it's like to look at four walls and just stare at it and not know a way out. I know what it's like to go to bed with the same tears and wake up in the same morning with the same tears that I had the night before. And I don't want to live like that any longer. I know that I was put on this earth to live and I want to live. So I'm going to do what's required in order to do so. And I know that the habit that I used to have of trying to compare and trying to see my experience in someone else and then to see them appear as though they're coming out on the other side and then I'm still stuck in this position and thinking that I'm still stuck in this position is going to hinder me from living. And I think that when you have it, instances of domestic violence, instances of sexual violence, that's the one thing that those perpetrators and those abusers want, is to take away your ability to live. So in a way, I say to myself, my choices that I make and how I choose to live and how I choose to survive is saying, no, I'm going to do it in spite of, and you did not win here. Point blank, period, end of story. Yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> but there's nothing wrong with trying to relate to another survivor. There's nothing wrong with that. Because mm, I, I see what I, you're saying. Like, yeah. really dialing in on am I relating to them or am I comparing? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You talk, again, I have just gone into a deep dive of <laughs> all of the stuff, all of your interviews, all of your advocacy stuff in front of on C-SPAN, in front of legislators. And w one thing that I notice is that you talk a lot about surviving and not thriving. And I kind of appreciate that personally because I think it's mentally tough for me and my experience to say, oh, I have now gone from a survivor into thriving. And you, I'm quoting you all the time. <laughs> You had, you had said in another interview that surviving is an ongoing process and we have had extreme sadness and we think that it's something finite, but it's always an ongoing process. So I, I'm just curious, why do you talk more about 
surviving versus the large narrative that we often hear about getting to thriving? Because I find that kind of defeating personally. I talk about surviving because that's a part of living, you know, and it's a part of the ability to live life moving forward. And sometimes going into a state of being a survivor is you allowing yourself to live life moving forward. That doesn't mean that living life moving forward after being a survivor is automatically going to turn you into thriving. It doesn't mean that the road ahead is automatically going to be smooth sailing. It doesn't mean that it's always going to be clear skies ahead. But once you commit to growing in into reclaiming yourself as a survivor, you're giving yourself the permission to live life moving forward. But as a society, with the policies that are put in place, we have to allow them the opportunity to live life moving forward. So what does that look like? And to structure that, to give a path to be able to do that. Because being a survivor is, to me, it's not allowing the ability to live in shame. What do we have to live in shame for? What, what do we have to be shame, ashamed about? That's not for us to own, not under any circumstances. And the minute that we choose the ability to put that down, that's the moment that we free ourselves. And that's what I'm always about, giving someone an opportunity to live life moving forward, no matter what that looks like, because it's always going to be unique to them. But you have to start. And in order to start that, you have to grow into thinking of yourself as a survivor. Once you say to yourself, let me give myself this gift, because so many people have taken so many things from, from me, I'm going to give myself that gift. So I am going to give myself the gift of being a survivor so I can live life moving forward. So you talk a lot about how it's going to be different for each person and how, how have you healed and how can we figure out what our own path to healing is? For me, healing is ongoing. It's always going to be ongoing. Once we say that healing is like a, a, a finite moment, then we stop doing the work that's required. We stop seeking counseling. We stop going to counseling. We stop supporting ourselves. We stop supporting other survivors. We stop being a part of a community that's out there for us, waiting for us to grow into survivors. If I recognize that it's an ongoing process, then I'm going to put forth the effort to keep doing the work. I mean, it's been quite some time and I'm still putting in the work. How do we know what it is that can help us heal? There's so many options out there. There are so many options, but I think first it's the developing your mindset and understanding what what's required and what's a part of developing that developing that mindset. It could be daily affirmations. And I know that may seem, how can I put it? I know that may seem like a cliche way of saying, but I'm in the process of affirming myself. So I ask survivors to affirm themselves, whether that's through meditation, whether that's through reading, whether that's through trying to constantly be a part of a tribe, because we're out there. We know what violence looks like. We know what trauma looks like, but we also have other 
tribe members and other people that have gone through our experiences to show us what the other side looks like. So we have to be determined to get to that in order to get to the other side. And there's so many resources and references out there as far as organizations and even I'll go first. The joy, it's not joy sometimes as much as it is understanding, wow, I have a voice. So when you hear your story out loud and you're able to connect with other people, once you really think of it, you say to yourself, I've been through a lot. And yet I'm still here. And it's like a revelation that comes over you. So you have to pick up that momentum and keep going with it, but never lose the ability to see that momentum and never be willing to give up on that momentum. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. Can you give us some examples of the affirmations that you use and kind of how do we find our own affirmations? And I'll just say for myself, it's hard to believe my own affirmations because <laughs> the shame gets in the way the guilt gets in the way the frustration the anger and then the regret and all that time that was wasted because I was so lost in it and then it's like I'm never gonna get better why do I keep thinking like this why is it that I can't get it yeah I just think there's something as I'm saying it, I just think there's something really challenging about believing my own affirmations. <laughs> I do, right? And in the process of that, when I sit down and I make the effort to just write whatever I'm feeling, whatever, whatever I'm thinking, I bring transparency. I created my own affirmations from things that I believe and what I wrote. There's two main, well, three main things that I really believe. One of the things is, is that negativity cannot grow where it's not fed. So if I don't want negative thoughts, then I'm not going to fuel negative thoughts by my way of thinking. I'm going to change the way I look at the situation, the way that I think about the situation so I can change my own narrative. Another thing is, which was very hard for me, because after my experiences, I had a hard time looking in the mirror because I didn't recognize who Mercy was. I didn't know if I could ever get her back. But one of the things that I believe is I try not to let other people's opinions become the own lens in which I see myself with. And I know it's not so simple as affirmations. I know it's not that. But once we try to change the narrative of how we view our situation, we can definitely definitely affirm ourselves and start seeing other paths forward. It's not something that's just going to be like, oh, one day, boom, you make the decision. I wish this never happened to me. I'm just not going to think about it. And then the next day, everything's going to be hunky-dory. That's not the way life works. I know I had to allow myself to feel what I'm feeling. I have to allow myself to feel it. I have to allow myself the opportunity to fall apart. And I think keep going and keep going and try not to fall apart is what's breaking me even more. I find that there is greater joy in allowing yourself to fall apart, but picking up the pieces and finding out and learning from the person you become after it. I have greater things. I have greater opportunities. I have greater connections, better connections with people because of it. 
What would you say to people that did not report? That there's no shame in that reporting. There's definitely no shame in that reporting because everybody has to do what they think is best for themselves. They have to do that. Not everybody is strong enough to go through the judicial system. And just because that's the choice that you made does not mean that you're any less of a survivor, does not mean that you have any less strength than the other person that chose to do that. This is about you, the survivor. This is about you taking back control and what works best for you. And if you chose not to report and if you chose not to go through the judicial system, that's okay. But going through the process and trying to get counseling and, and, and psychological care is a must, is a must. There is no escaping that. There is no getting around that. There is no shortcut involved in that. That is a must, no matter what. What do you want us to know? People might see me and not see my, not know of my past and not know of my story. And they might see a well put together person. But I think what people will need to know is that I make a conscious choice on a day-to-day -day basis to try to wear my scars well. Another thing that I would want someone to know is, is that, as I've always said to others, surviving is always going to be unique to yourself. Once you figure out what is part of that process, you owe it to yourself to figure out what's part of that process. But you have to start somewhere. And just because you start in a simple, in the smallest steps does not mean that you cannot grow beyond that because it's always gonna be unique to you. And that we have to allow ourselves the ability to live life moving forward, no matter what. The act and the crime has already occurred, but if we don't allow ourselves to live life moving forward, we're doing an additional crime to ourselves. Oh, mercy, mercy, mercy. <laughs> <laughs> Well, what I hear you saying is really about that the shame is done. Oh, yeah. The, the shame is a part of what happened, but that, in a way, there's nothing we can do about the shame. Right. And it's not even ours to pick up anymore. I just think there's so much power in your voice, and I'm so honored that you came to join us on this episode and share your wisdom with our listeners. I, I know that it's hard to be a survivor and there's so many complexities to it. So I really hope that those of you listening out there, there's so many paths forward and how can we stay in touch with you and how can we get involved with the work you're doing? I can be reached on www.mercymckinley.com. That's M-E-R-C-I-M-C-K-I-N-L-E-Y.com. Amazing. And another thing that I wanted to leave to the, the viewers or the listeners is a poem that I wrote, and it's entitled Your Voice. Your voice was not made to be taken away in fear. It's not meant to fade in the background of your tears. Your voice is not contained inside the box your emotions built. It is not meant to be chained inside of unjust guilt. It is meant to be spoken, heard, and shouted beyond your pain. It is never beyond repair or broken. Harness it and let it take rain. Beautiful. Beautiful. 
Marcy also is a poet, as you can tell. (laughs) (laughs) She has a bunch of books out and also a children's book. So I think those links are on your website. You can also find her on Amazon. We'll link to all of her interviews and (laughs) her books in the show notes. I'm really excited that you joined us. And it is truly an honor, an honor. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Jessica Minhas, and thanks for joining us on I'll Go First. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Our mission is to uplift and support you in your journey of healing. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, comment, and share. And if there's a topic you'd like us to dive deeper into or would like to share your story with us, we are available on all major platforms at I'll Go First and www.algofirst.com. We'll see you next time. <laughs>